0: Will you join with me as we continue to worship our awesome God by opening his word together? Let me pray. Father God, we just come together to continue to worship you. Lord, we are people, we are a people saved by your grace. It is amazing grace. Lord, what mercy and grace that you have so lavishly poured on us through your son Jesus Christ. And Lord, as we Open up your word. We get the chance to learn more about who you are. I pray, God, that your word would accomplish what you promise it will. As Isaiah 55 says, For as the rain and the snow come down from heaven and do not return there, but water the earth, making it bring forth in sprout, bringing seeds to the sower and bread to the eater, so shall my word go so shall my word be that goes out from my mouth. It shall not return to me empty, but it shall accomplish that which I purpose and shall succeed in the thing for which I sent it. Lord, may your word accomplish what you have ordained it to do. So, Lord, by your Spirit, help me to preach this sermon with what is needed and with appropriate affection. Use this sermon for your glory for the joy of your people, and the salvation of the lost. Amen. We're in Micah chapter 2, continuing on in our sermon series in the Minor Prophets. The last part of this oracle, of the first oracle, there's three in Micah. So in Micah chapter 2, the word of the Lord says this, Woe to those who devise wickedness and work evil on their beds. When the morning dawns, they perform it because it is in the power of their hands. They covet fields and seize them and houses and take them away. They oppress a man and his house, a man and his inheritance. Therefore, thus says the Lord, Behold, against this family I am devising disaster from which you cannot remove your necks. And you shall not walk hotly, for it will be a time of disaster. In that day they shall take up a taunt song against you and moan bitterly and say, We are utterly ruined. He changes our portion of my people. How he removes it from me. To an apostate he allots our fields, therefore you will have none to cast the line by lots in the assembly of the Lord. Do not preach, thus they preach. One should not preach of the, such things, disgrace will not overtake us. Should this be said, O house of Jacob, has the Lord, has the Lord grown impatient? Are these his deeds? Do not my words do good to him who walks uprightly? But lately my people have risen up as an enemy. You strip the rich robe from those who pass by trustingly with no thought of war. The woman of my people you drive out from their delightful houses. From their young children you take away my splendor forever. Arise and go, for there is no place to rest because of uncleanliness that destroys with grievous destruction. If a man should go out and utter wind and lie, saying, I will preach to you of wine and strong drink, he would be a preacher for this people. I will surely assemble all of you, O Jacob. I will gather the remnant of Israel, I will set them together like sheep in a fold, like flock in its pastures. A noisy multitude of men, he who breaks the breach goes up before them. They break through and pass the gates going out by it. Their king passes on before them, the Lord at their head. And this is the word of the Lord. When growing up, I uh, went to church. I was one of those church-going kids. My parents were, I was, if the church was open, I was there, Uh, including back in the day with the evening service. So I remember uh, we, the church I grew up in was a typical church A-frame building, you know what I mean? You know, they had the high steeple, and like most of those A-frame buildings, they had a wonderful balcony, and the balcony was a great place for the kids to go and fool around. But the problem with the balcony is that the noise echoed uh, from there. And I remember I was sitting up there with my friend. We were kind of near the front of the balcony, and we were fooling around, and we dropped something. I can't remember what it was. My friend being the pastor's kid. And uh, because PKs are always the troublemakers. <laughs> Except for mine. Mine are obviously not. <laughs> um and I remember we dropped something and the noise rattled through the church and echoed and, the, and his dad was preaching. And all of a sudden he keeps preaching, like he doesn't even skip a beat, but his gaze changes. And he looks up and he's talking and you could tell by the look of his eyes, he was not a happy man. Luckily he was not my father, so I didn't have to worry about it very much. See, in this chapter, in chapter 1, we see two oracles of judgment. Destruction of Samaria and the threatening Jerusalem. But now there's a third judgment that comes. And, And just like the pastor who found his gaze and stared upon my friend and I as we were not listening to his sermon, Micah is gazing around like a searchlight searching. He's looking. And he's found it. You can feel the anger in this passage as Micah preaches it to, not to the heathens, but to the people of God. And he begins to judge them very, very specifically. A very harsh judgment. But even in this passage, we see this amazing display of the gospel as well as we begin to work through it. See, Micah is searching for those who are most responsible for this bad situation. And his gaze comes peering on the wealthy, greedy elite. In verse 1 we see this, Woe to those who devise wickedness and and work evil on their beds. When the morning dawns, they perform it because it is the the power of their hands. Micah has been speaking generally about Jerusalem's sin, but now, like a searching spotlight, he focuses accusations specifically. It's a coveting heart that he begins to address. He begins by rebuking the greedy rich. So in verses 1 to 5, he just opens up the floodgates of condemnation upon these people. Woe to those who devise these types of plans. In the original, in the Hebrew, when you look at that first word, woe, it's a a word that's used for a funeral procession. By simply just starting off with that one word, he's saying these are dead men walking. They have no soul. They're dead men walking. And we see this word used in 1 Kings. These people think they can do whatever they want, whenever they want to do it, to whomever they want. But now they're receiving this funeral lament pronounced over them. It's this wake-up call. Because they are literally dead men walking. But as we continue on, even in this first verse, you see, woe to those who devise wickedness and, and work evil, on their beds. They're not even out of bed yet. And they're thinking of ways of doing evil. But what's interesting about this is that it reminds us that everything we do is laid out bare before the eyes of a holy God. Even in their beds, God sees what they are doing. And He will judge accordingly. When God looks at the greedy rich people as they lay in their beds he finds them scheming up ways of taking advantage of people so that they can get richer. This is an indictment describing a covetous wealthy people staying awake so that they can come up with more ways of getting money. Right off the bat you see what coveting does to one person's heart. They're not even resting. They're not. And, 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 and Micah will talk about that later. Their mind is always working, how can I get more? You know, Billy down the street, You know, he owes me a little bit of money. Maybe I can twist it a little bit, push him a little bit, break him a little bit. And he'll have to sell me his house so then I can have another house and have more money, and more lands. They're scheming. So why do they take their time scheming for more money rather than enjoying the rest that God has promised? See, I think when I look at this, uh, I've been there myself. We all have. The Ten Commandments says you should not covet. And the the reason why it's there is we all struggle with that. So I'm not the only one. So if you're all looking at me like, oh, I don't do that. You're lying. Uh, That's like up there on the top one. So we all covet. And when I can feel my heart beginning to slip, I begin to obsess over that. What are some ways in which I can get a little bit of extra money so that I can buy that? Instead of just simply resting in what God has given me, I begin to elevate the gift above the giver. So they covet in verse 2. They covet fields and they seize them. As they want more and more, it breeds more and more discontent with what God has given given them. See, this is why the Puritans used to say, be murdering sin or it will be murdering you. If you're not actively fighting the sin that's in your life, it will overtake. And that's what's happening with these people. As they lay in bed, scheming of ways of of getting more. And God has already talked about this. He said this in Exodus 20, verse 17, you shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife or his male servants or his female servants or his ox or his donkey or anything that is your neighbor's. So instead of helping people who are suffering, they take advantage of them. They're the greedy rich. And their sin is coveting. And like a searchlight, Micah focuses specifically on them. But I need to make this note, uh, and don't hear what I'm not saying. It's not like the Bible's coming along and saying you shall not be rich. It's not like you can't have, you can't be a millionaire or a billionaire or any of those things. It's how you got there and what you are doing with what God has blessed you with. And in this country, No matter how much you make, you know, there's websites out there if you type in your income that tells you what percentage you are in the whole world. I did that once when I was first married. I was like, I couldn't even buy groceries. I was like, the top five. Right? Everything, perspective matters. So this isn't about the rich. This is about the greedy. This is about the sin of the heart of coveting. The outcome of allowing that sin to continue to fester is to to begin to elevate items above God and others. For you and me, we see that there are millions of dollars that have been made from the dishonest all over the place. From God's point of view, people who engage in these things are just dead men walking. For us as a church, it means that what is the opposite of coveting is being generous. It means remembering that I don't ever, as a Christian, get to say, that's my money. This is what the Apostle Paul is describing in his letters to the church in Ephesus. He says that before Christ, our life was dead in our trespasses and sin. So when, 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 when Micah opens up, woe, woe are you, You are a dead man walking. It's like what we see in Ephesians 2, 1 to 3. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the powers of the air, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. See, these people were doing just that. They were walking as dead men. Coveting only brings death. Covetness cannot satisfy. It's an endless pit that can never be filled. That's why we come around with that statement, you know that statement, keeping up with the Joneses? We got to keep up with the Joneses. Do you really? No, you don't. I was lamenting about this not too long ago. I often, I often think about it all the time. I went to a private school. I went to a Christian school growing up. And I was the guy wearing byway shoes. It drove me nuts. Because I knew my dad had money. <laughs> but the hearts, my coveting was there. What did I need to do in order to look like Billy who had the LA gear light-up shoes? Or the Reebok pumps. Those were the good ones. And then they had the baseball glove that had the same thing. Coveting only brings death. And Jesus says in Luke twelve fifteen, And he said to them, Take care and be on your guard against all covetousness, for one's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. Why would Jesus come along and say that? Because he is enough. And coveting says this, Jesus, you're not enough. Your sacrifice, your death, your grace, your mercy that you poured on me, it's not enough. It's not enough. Jesus says in Matthew 6, verse 13, But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. So Jesus tells his disciples not to worry about material things, but rather to put his kingdom first. Not mine, his. Then they will find a deep peace and will have all of their material needs met as well. Not that you will have the nicest car or the nicest house or a motorcycle, but you will have peace. The life redeemed by God has God at the center and seeks to bring the divine order of peace into society. Just as the coveting heart will find more and more ways to oppress in order to fill an infinite spiritual vacuum, the heart with God at the center will be satisfied and will seek creative ways to express generosity and kindness. Most of the things that we have around us that helped the poor, even our healthcare system, our education, were started by Christians who were exemplifying that. The unfortunate thing is when people move away from the very core that began that the gospel of Jesus Christ. See, the roots of coveting come from a, a dissatisfaction of God being God and, and that he is enough. Covening says to God, I'm not thankful for what you've given me by your grace and mercy. I'm not content with what I have. And you are not enough. And because of that, they are dead men walking. Because Christ is enough. He is enough. He is enough to save us from the darkest of sins. As Martin was reminding us today, no one is outside of God's grace. Coveting leads to death because it leads away from the source of life, who is Jesus Christ. And all those, as Micah continues on, and all, for all those who are telling those people that, hey, you know what? It's not that bad. It's okay. You know, God's not going to do anything to you. God made a promise that he wasn't going to hurt you. Micah has some choice words to say to them too. To all those people that say that it's okay to act like this they they have their ear they're having their ears tickled by the preacher. And Micah comes and he begins to rebuke he's rebuking the ear tickling preacher. In Micah, six, in Micah 2, 6-11, to 11, he continues on, Do not preach, thus they preach. Oh, one should not preach of such things. Disgrace will not overtake us. See, up to this point in Micah, he really hasn't hit any walls. He just gets to go and proclaim what God has already told him. There's nothing new that Micah is, is showing. If you look in the Ten Commandments, you see that there's if and but statements. If you don't keep my commands, this is what will happen. Micah's just communicating that again. And in Micah chapter 2, he comes and he specifically pours out on those people who think that, hey, they're okay. See, people are no longer dancing and singing the amens of judgment that we see in, in chapter 1. No longer those in Jerusalem saying, yeah, Samaria! They're going to get wiped off the face of the planet, thank God. Now the judgment has been turned to them. And now Micah begins to feel some of that. Do not preach thus they preach. One should not preach of such things. Disgrace will not overtake us. How could God be angry towards his own people? Stop nagging us, Micah. We're good to go. God isn't going to judge us. He made a promise. And Micah says, Let me tell you how things are really going to be. One should not preach of such things, i.e. people should not preach of being judged. People, these people, these preachers were more concerned with making sure everyone's ears were being tickled and their paycheck. But if the full counsel of God isn't preached, we just go on our way thinking everything is okay. In fact, the gospel itself tells us that everything is not okay. When we talk about the gospel, what makes it good news? How do people know that indeed it is good news if you don't tell them the bad news? That they are in need of a Savior. And our God is a God of justice and cares about justice. And the cross shows us that. God needed a way to fulfill His justice and keep humanity from being destroyed. That is shown in the cross. The gospel is good news because Christ died for our sins and he rose again. So in verse 7, there's four rhetorical questions that begin to be asked. Should this be said, O house of Jacob, has the Lord grown impatient? Yes. Are these his deeds? Yes. Do not my words do good to him who walks uprightly? Yes. And then verse 8, but lately my people have risen up as an enemy. The promise, the covenant that God made with his people required that there would be a life of obedience and his people weren't doing that. And the preachers were saying, hey, it's okay. See, God made the promise. They were only giving one part of the message, not the other part. Nobody likes to be the bad guy. But that's what was happening here. They've been disobeying and God responds to, the, to these questions with one of his own. Do not my words do good to him who walks uprightly and brought, God brings them back to the main terms of the covenant, the promise that he made with his people all the way back. The people of God are to be righteous and to seek justice or a curse would result. The preachers were talking We're taking God's promises and not giving the other parts. See, in the Hebrew, the phrase walks uprightly was used to contrast those who pleased the Lord with those who were earlier condemned by walking arrogantly instead of uprightly. And he continues on and he gives more indictments to these people. These people have attacked the helpless and and devastated women and children taking their homes away from them. What was happening, how they were getting more stuff, how these greedy people were getting more stuff, is that there was debtor's jail. If you know your history, that still came up until the 1800s. And they would maybe figure out a way where they couldn't pay the debt anymore. So those people, the husbands, the fathers would be taken into slavery to pay for that debt. Leaving the the mother and the children with no source of income. These were evil people. And the women are driven from their homes and the children here called my splendor have also been taken away probably to be, debt, to be slaves themselves. All three of these crimes, a the robbing of garments, driving women from their homes, reducing children to debt slavery, are crimes against the vulnerable. The husband is taken away, leaving these women as widows and these children as orphans. And God's question rings again, do not my words Do good to him who walks uprightly. Micah in verse 10 says, Arise and go, for this is no place of rest. Well, Micah, well, quite frankly, he's pretty angry. Essentially, he comes and says, Get lost. That's what he's saying here. Arise and go. It's just more poetic than saying, Get lost. And as a result, God tells them to leave the land because they are making it unclean. God will purge his people. There is no rest for these people who are disobedient. And rest is an amazing word. I love that. You know, we talk about that often. We, we rest in the finished work of Jesus Christ. I no longer have to work to gain a favor with God. Christ did that on the cross. I rest in that. But for these people, there's no rest. They got to keep working at it. And when we think of the gospel, you can say rest is that finished work of Jesus Christ. And Micah gives this great picture later on in in chapter 4, verse 4, that says this, but they shall sit every man under his vine and under his fig tree, and no one shall make them afraid. For the mouth of the Lord of hosts has spoken. Isn't that a great picture? That's rest. And these people will not experience it. This is the rest that us as Christians get to have in Jesus Christ. You know, just... For they shall sit, every man, under his vine and under his fig tree, just the shade from the beating sun. And no one shall make them afraid anymore. But for Judah, this won't happen. So verse 11 comes along. So Micah turns his gazing eyes to the people who are encouraging this. And essentially he calls them windbags. I like contemporizing these texts. It makes it more powerful, right? Arise and go, for this is no place of rest, he says. In verse 11, if a man should go about and utter wind and lies, a.k.a. windbag, saying, I will preach to you of wine and strong drink. God's saying, judgment's coming. The preacher is saying, Wine and drink. Micah was hit with some opposition here. And he continues on to preach it. But if you are speaking the gospel, you should expect that non-Christians will disagree with you, right? We should expect that. But here's the thing that throws you for a loop sometimes, is when people in the church begin to argue with you. And that's what Micah is experiencing. It's the people of God who are fighting with him. You need to be able to ask, what does the Bible say? We need to make sure that we are grounded in the word of God so that we can have the discernment that is needed in order to fight whatever may be coming our way. You need to be grounded in the word of God so that you know, like if the preacher comes up and says something wrong, that you can come and say, hey, preacher, that was wrong. And here it is in God's Word. We need to be able to say, get out. So the preachers were encouraging the growth of roots of co- coveting coming from a dissatisfaction of God being God and that He is enough. Seeing that God wouldn't care about taking a second seat in one's life and, who, and how ch- others are treated. God cares deeply about how people are treated cares deeply about it james talks about it what is a good religion is caring for the widows and the orphans the ten commandments outline how widows and orphans and those who are marginalized the aliens in the land are to be treated god cares deeply about that and if we in our hearts are Christ-centered are God-centered in our hearts, we will show the same characteristics that God shows to other people. But as he continues on, as, as all this judgment is coming out, it ultimately points to our need of a great shepherd, But God doesn't leave his people there, for he will be their shepherd. There's a shepherd for God's remnants in verses 12 to 13. I will surely assemble. This is an emphatically God will save. There's been a long time of judgment going on here. Israel has been devastated. There's only a remnant left But here God, a royal shepherd, will gather his scattered people like sheep in a pen. And although his people may be reduced to a remnant in exile, in the future they will be restored and will become a strong group. In verse 13, he continues on, goes up before them. This will happen. This is certain. God is the breaker who opens up the way and leads his people out of the land where they have been scattered. The people have been gathered. This is not the final word of judgments. The one who makes a breach goes before them to break them out. But before they break free, their king passes over them. Yahweh is at their head. This is a remarkable text bringing together a variety of these powerful pictures that Micah is trying to paint for us here. The imagery of sheep in a pen. People behind a wall. And God appearing both as a shepherd, king, and as one who breaches the walls. And leads his people to freedom. Now check out this diagram here. I think it should be on there. I'm trying something new. Hey, whoa. Whoa. The top part says God's holiness. The bottom says God, our sin. And we see that it kind of expands. There's a little cross with a big cross. Hopefully this shows the relationship between God's holiness and our sinfulness on one hand, and on the other hand, our corresponding appreciation for the cross of Jesus Christ. First, there's two lines going out from a single point. One is ascending diagonally upward and the other is descending diagonally downward. The upward line represents our awareness of God's holiness, of who God is. And the downward line is our awareness of our sins. Second, a cross is inserted at, at various points between these two diverging lines where the gap between the upward and the downward lines are is small only a small cross is there right that fits between them this shows a little esteem for the cross among those who have little appreciation for god's perfect holiness it feels a little conviction over their sin just a little bit little cross the point is that those who best comprehend the greatness of god's surpassing holiness and the depths of our own awful sin are those who most glorify and trust in in, in God's grace Micah presents a vastly holy God who is burning with anger with indignation against sin But for this very reason, Micah preaches a gospel of wondrously amazing grace, raising high the hopes of God's people, having first driven them to their knees in conviction over sin. So sharp is this. The city will fall. They will go into exile. But this isn't the end. So what? Like the pastor from when I was growing up, Yeah, I'll read that. (laughs) The city will fall and they will go into exile. This is just. This is right. But what we may ask of the poor whom the rich have exploited. If the city falls and the wicked are punished, will not the poor be punished too? Will the innocent not suffer with the guilty? And Micah seems to say that they will. But he has good news for them too. For the remnant of the upright, there will be restoration. So like the pastor as I was growing up with his peering eyes, like a search light, looking for the noisy kids in the balcony, Micah's gaze goes to his people who are coveting and those who are encouraging them to do that. But this passage is a reminder that our God is a promise-keeping God. The people do not deserve this kindness, but God has made a covenant. And when things seem like it couldn't get any worse, he will break down whatever barrier imprisons and enslaves his people. The remnant theme is, is, is really important as we look at this. See, in the New Testament, we see Jesus praying for shepherds to seek the lost sheep of the house of Israel. He is the ultimate breaker of the prison of house of death. It is because he breaches the walls of his own tomb that he can breach the walls of the tomb that imprisons each one of us. The event of resurrection breaks open the world of death. And in the final book of the Bible, in Revelation, this theme is finally the breakouts. And all the power, the saints escape from Babylon as the walls come crumbling down in Revelation 17 and 18. And they are led home where they will enjoy eternal bliss. As Revelation 7:17 7, says, the Lamb in the midst of the throne will be their shepherd and He will be their guide. And He will guide them to springs of living water. And God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. What an amazing thing. The roots of covenant comes from a dissatisfaction that God is God. That God is enough. And that only brings death. But he is enough. That's a shepherd king who breaks the walls and gathers his people to himself. And brings life. Let's continue to worship this God who does these things.